0: Amen. You can be seated. So we're continuing our series through the book of Philippians, something called Pure Joy, where we're thinking about the concept of what it looks like to have the joy of God in us. And the reason why uh, we're thinking about this from the book of Philippians is uh, Philippians is just shocking because Paul writes this letter from prison and he doesn't know what's going to happen with his life. He doesn't know whether he's going to live. He doesn't know whether he's going to die. And he's really struggling with this. There's passages where he's like, I just, I don't know what I want out of this. I don't know whether I want to go be with God or continue on to bless you. So I'm not sure what I'm doing, yet he writes with such persistent hope. If you learn nothing else from this series, I hope you learn this trivia fact that in four chapters he writes the word joy 16 times from a jail cell, not knowing whether he's going to live or die. It's easy for me to get robbed of my joy in very simple circumstances. I can get robbed of my joy when the Dodgers blow a four-run four lead in the seventh inning. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, what happens when, when that goes on. But what does it look like to have the persistent joy of God? And today we're going to look at maybe my, my favorite verse in all of the New Testament. As Paul works out what Jesus looked like and what he did in the middle of Philippians chapter 2. It's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. When I was about five or six years old, I was in a grocery store, and I saw a a bunch of pamphlets and booklets, and I wasn't sure if any of it cost money or not, but there was this book that just caught my eye. It was a book of the meaning of baby names. I don't know why as a six-year-old I was interested in this. Uh, I weird then. I'm still weird now, Um, so that may explain some things, but I just thought, oh, it'd be really interesting to find out what Brian means, and I wasn't sure if it costs money or not, but I just put it in my pocket because I really, really wanted it, and I got out to the car and then went back home, and I looked at it, again, I wasn't really sure, but when I looked at it a second time, I was sure, and I still remember the number. It was 79 cents, this was the late 80s, so 79 cents was like $3, right? It was, it was different. I was panicked, and I didn't want to go through the whole thing of like confessing it to my parents and then going to the grocery store and doing that. I just didn't want to, so I came up with the next best solution. I'm just going to bury that book in the backyard. Like, that is what I'm going to do. Let's just pretend that this never happened. And so I went to the backyard, and I'm just furiously digging a hole. And I'm telling you, I distinctly remember this, that I um, hear police sirens go off. And I just start to think, oh no, the jig's up, like I'm done. What is it, 10 to 15 with no parole? Like I I don't know, when I just kept going, luckily the police sirens weren't for me. And I remember burying that thing in the backyard and walking away. Luckily no one ever found out about that until much later. But if you were to go to that backyard now and dig it up, you probably would find that book. It's maybe disintegrated at this point since it's been a long time. But I remember what it was to look in a grocery store to grab for something and then be terrified when I realize the repercussions of it. Now, I would argue that we still grasp for things. And maybe you have a story like mine where you stole something and you got in trouble or you didn't get in trouble, you buried it in the backyard, that's normal. Um, but um, if you, whatever it was, where you, you were grasping for something, you, you wanted to, to get something, and whatever it is, and the thing is, I think it's maybe easier to identify when we're young, when we can think about those stories, but I think we're from a long line of graspers. And if we're not careful, we can continue to live that way because partly that's just the way the world works. But it happens to be the way that Rome worked as well. There's a Roman historian named Cicero who said this about Roman society. He said, By nature we yearn and hunger for honor, and once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there's nothing we are not prepared to bear to suffer in order to secure it. Honor in Roman society... More than wealth and more than love. I would argue perhaps in our time and place, love is often what's worshipped. But in Rome, honor was what was worshipped. It was the prized commodity. And the elite people who had honor, they would fight for certain positions and they would try to look smarter and more honorable than people who were around them. You had like just large portions of society that weren't necessarily included in this, but they were the ones who weren't with honor. And there was even some things, there's a great book, Simon, if you go to the next slide, the title of this book is amazing, Of Persons Born in the Lowest Station Who Tried by Falsehood to Thrust Themselves into Illustrious Families sounds more like a thesis statement than a title. I think I would have gone with Out of Their League or something like that. But it's a very long title, and it's a book by this guy, Valerius Maximus, who basically just tells stories about times when people like, stepped out of their honor code. They tried their best to go to some other place because they really wanted to be honorable. There's one story in there that's just fantastic about a guy who like, moves to this new town, and he's trying to pretend that he's a big deal. You know, he's coming to the new town, he wants to show off that he's pretty important, and he has many leather-bound books at home. And so he is like, trying to pretend that he's from this big deal family, and it's found out later that he's a horse doctor. You should gasp because that's like the worst you could be. Today, we think of veterinarians as somewhat of an honorable thing and um, something that we, we love our animals and our pets. But back in that day, being a horse doctor was about the lowest of the low type position that you would have. So it's found out that this guy is uh, part of like the low class of society and not the big deal he's trying to pretend that he is. And he gets kicked out of Italy for it. Not like kicked out of that province, kicked out of Italy because he pretended, even though he was a horse doctor. And in many ways, that's the way the society functioned. There were those who were elite, those who had the honor and power, and nobody wanted those who didn't to cross over, so they had to be very careful about that. There was a phrase that would describe this group of people who would have been the day workers and slaves. They called them the rabble. That was like the, just the normal people generally. They would call them the rabble. Author John Ortberg says this about um, the rabble. The rabble serves an important purpose, as one ancient writer put it. The existence of inferiors is an advantage to superiors since they will be able to point out those over whom they are superior. And this is like, just seriously? Like this is, this is how this world worked? And that was what it was like. At theaters, the people who were most important had the best seats, which is still a little bit true today. But at dinner parties, Jesus actually talks about this. He tells parables about having dinner parties and the most honorable people, they sit at the front and those who are of least honor, they sit at the back, which I'm really glad they did away with because that sounds like a really awkward dinner party conversation, right? Like, who's our most honorable friend? Like, how are we going to sit in the, how do you tell the person at the end, like, sorry, but like, you're not really that honorable. Like, I don't know what to tell you, but that was how it worked. It was a society that was built in all areas on that. And there were the slaves, as I mentioned, historians estimate that it was anywhere from 50 to 60% of society um, was, was slaves, and slaves were just the lowest of the low, they were treated somewhat like property, um, and in that day and time, there was a punishment that was reserved mostly for slaves, crucifixion. Generally, the people who died at the hands of crucifixion were those who were slaves, because it was people who would step out of line, they would maybe try to run away, or they would do something, they would steal something from their owners. And it was a way of Rome keeping the peace, because it was very important to their economics that things would stay the way that they were. And so a cross was a way to say, don't mess with us, don't step out of line, you're in the rabble, stay in the rabble, you're not that important, you're not that significant, stay where you are. And those of you who are here, you're all watching this Like this person is dying because they tried to take a step out of where they are. And so it was a, a society that was very much structured. You had the, the lowest of the low, and it went all the way up to the top. You had the different social spheres and all of these people. And at the top of the ladder was Caesar, whichever Caesar was in charge at that time. And the Caesars claimed to be sons of God on coins. It says divinous. It, it's like, I am the divine one. And this is how our world works. You are at the bottom. I am at the top. And all of you, you can do what you can to try and fight your way up. It's going to be very difficult for you, but this is how our society is structured. If you go to a dinner party, you're going to sit like that. If you go to the theater, it's going to be like that. If you are are just around people, this is what you would be seen as. This is how we work. It's a ladder. It's a structure. And our society, if we're honest, isn't all that different. And we may have more freedom And hopefully we have the ability to honor people who have different jobs and different things in in our world a little bit better than that. But we can end up in this same struggle to try and just fight our way up and spend our entire lives thinking that if I only have that one thing, you know, if I get this, then it's going to make me happy. If I figure this out, then it's going to be better. And we can spend our entire lives trying to fight our way up the ladder. We're not all that different. We're from a long line of graspers. People who are grabbing for things, who are thinking, this thing will satisfy me, this is going to make my life so much better. And it's in a world that's similar to ours, maybe even more structured like that than ours, that Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, which I would say is maybe the heartbeat of the New Testament. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now really, any of these verses or sentences I think mean, you could say, all right, I'm just going to try to live that one out this week. That one's a good, good one right there. Like, just try to live that one out. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he breaks into, it's probably indented in your Bible, scholars think that this is perhaps a song that early Christians sang. And it's possible that Paul is quoting this song to them, basically saying, remember that song you sing? You actually have to try to live it out. And it's hard in a society. It's based all on honor and structure. You have to try and live this out. And so he reminds them, perhaps, of this song that they sang Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in a world where their leader, Caesar, is trying to claim that he is God, Paul says this actually is what God is like. That this is the way that when God came among us, this is what God is like. And all the ways that you struggle for power, all the ways that you grasp to put yourself up on the ladder just a little bit more, this is what God is like. And be careful if you live your life just trying to go up, up, up on the ladder because you might miss Jesus because Jesus is going down the ladder. Because this is what God is like. And this is shocking News to them, and it should be shocking news to us. Jesus has a choice. We all collectively, we don't have a choice about death, but Jesus has a choice, and Paul says that he became obedient, humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. The word cross, actually in like the early Christian circles, they didn't like to use it that much because in Philippi and around in Rome and some of those areas, it was considered like a curse word because you just didn't, you didn't say that. Some of us wear crosses on our necks, and if we do, I hope that you understand that, that what you're carrying around is like platinum. I mean, it's, just, it's something that, that is, is dangerous. It's something that the early Christians didn't use as jewelry because it was a reminder that their king had died on a cross. But this, church, this is what God is like. And we live in a world that is very much unlike this, where people are fighting for status and we worship a God who laid down status. I think we see this in the writings of Paul, even in the letter of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that can also be translated slave. He writes to this church in Philippi, a church that likely had some slaves in it, almost certainly would have had some slaves in it. He says to them, I am ultimately, my identity is a servant or a slave of God. And that changes how I see people. And then it's fascinating. And so he says this about himself, that he uses this word that would have described the the rabble, the lowest of the low. And then he says to all God's holy people in Christ, Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and the deacons. When we read some of the words that Paul writes to some of these churches, you think, wow, they must have had a lot better people than we do. But he continues to write with persistent hope about them. And he calls them saints. He calls them God's holy people. He mentions overseers and deacons. So even in Paul's writings, I think we see he calls himself a slave. But he calls all of them holy. And then he mentions overseers and deacons. He says something that they would have identified with a, with a source of pride, right? This is the, I, I'm a deacon in this church. I, I, I'm one of the church leaders. So he describes himself as lowly and he compliments them. And he says this is what God is like. Can we really say that we live this out? Because this is hard stuff. It's hard to Try and live honoring other people and not just trying to live to honor yourself or trying to think about the things that you don't have or the things that you want. What would it look like for you to recognize that at the center of your faith is a crucified Messiah? That is the center of our faith. When I was uh, struggling in, in ministry, I don't even remember exactly what the situation was, but about five years ago, I was having a conversation with, with a mentor of mine, and he just put his hand, hand on my shoulder, and he said, what did you expect? You're joining in the ministry of Jesus and Paul. And don't be tripping, you're certainly not Jesus or Paul. But what did you expect? You're serving a crucified Lord, at least hopefully. You're serving God who healed people, who performed miracles, who loved in ways that still are unbelievable. When you read the stories of Jesus, it's still unbelievable how he loved people, and he was killed. So what do you expect? What does it look like for you in your relationships to have the mind of Christ? And when you are having an an argument with somebody, someone that's close to you, someone at work, are you trying to win that argument? Are you trying to sound smart? Are you trying to sound right? Are you trying to sound spiritually superior? Or are you trying to serve Jesus better? Why Do you do the things that you do? Why do you say the things that we say? Ultimately, we should try to center ourselves on these verses. This is what God is like, and ultimately, this is great news, right? Because this is the way that God loves the world. And there's so many different ways and different things I could talk about when it comes to living out of this kind of power. I was listening to a podcast recently with a guy who's a pastor in Canada named Kerry Niehoff, and he was talking about a part of his book. And he said that we have to be really careful, especially today. I think one way that we see power is in cynicism and that's largely due to technology and we have the ability to all be critics of whatever it is you know we can just tweet about things and we feel our sense of power or authority we can put our opinions on facebook and there's a certain like sense of like higher authority because we now have these platforms for ourselves and we have the ability to just critique everything so we'll like you know tweet about like that movie was horrible and you just want to say well why don't you try to make a better one then That TV show is the worst I've ever seen. Okay, then go try and make it. Especially if you're here, you live in Hollywood, you could try. Go for it. I remember when Yelp came out, I just thought, this is going to be so great. We're going to have a way to find all the best restaurants, but it's pretty much worthless. Every restaurant's 3.7 stars, basically. Because you have some people who are raving about the meatloaf and then someone else who's saying, I don't know what all the hype's about. You know, and we just have like, oh, I don't really know what the big deal is about this place. And generally, all we use Yelp for, and again, I was so excited when it came out. I was like, We're well, just going to like unlock the key to all the world's best food. But I don't even really use it for the reviews. All I use it for is like, are there some restaurants near me? And I don't really care. And all I look at is like, all right, I want barbecue. I don't care what the reviewers say. Because now that we have the chance to review things, everyone is a food critic because they watched Iron Chef one time. <laughs> Cynicism in and of itself is power. It's being able to look at a situation and someone else's like creative work in the world and just to put it down and to make yourself feel a little bit higher, Right? Because for that moment, it does. It makes you feel a little bit more superior, like, you know, you're above that person or that situation, or you could do a better job if you had the opportunity to. And in this podcast, Carrie Niehoff said, the problem with cynicism is it's never curious. And our world needs more curiosity. I'm struck by the fall festival that's coming up uh, this evening, and my son's excitement for it. He is very excited. We went to a fall festival at his school on uh, Friday night, and he woke up at 6 30 and was like, when's the fall festival? Can I get dressed for it? And I've been to plenty of fall festivals in my life. I know what to expect. There's going to be candy. There's going to be some bounce houses. There's going to be some people dressed up. You know, I've been to enough, so I kind of know what it is, and so I can lose my curiosity and my enthusiasm. That's one of the great blessings that kids give to all of of us. Whether you you have kids or not, you get to see what it's like to see curiosity and excitement in the eyes of kids. I think our world desperately needs more of that. We don't need more critics and cynics. We need more people who are willing to be curious. Who won't use the power that, that they have to try and cut other people down, but lift other people up. You have no idea how powerful your words are. And if you don't believe that, think about this. I could go on a tirade for 30 seconds to a minute right now, and what I say could make me lose my job. Right? (laughs) Florence just said, pretty sure. Florence is like, she's like, I'm waiting. The words that we have, the words that we share, they have unbelievably great power. And the words that we share with, with our coworkers, with our friends, with our neighbors, they have the ability to like, lift people up, as Paul does at the beginning of this letter, and says, you are saints, the overseers, and deacons, all of God's holy people. I'm so excited for you, and I'm going to put myself down in, in, retros- in position of like who Christ is so that I might honor you. What would it look like? For you to have the mind of Christ. To understand that the way that you live, it makes a difference, it has an impact. I love how the book of Acts describes Paul's work in Philippi. When he leaves Philippi and arrives in Thessalonica, word comes from Philippi kind of about what Paul is about. And the New Testament says that Paul and his workers, they are turning the world upside down. And that's what Christians should be known for that we turn this kind of power upside down, that we don't just do everything. We don't have the same mindset as everybody else. We have the very mindset of Jesus Christ. And that changes how we interact with people. It changes how we love people. One fundamental thing that I think it would cause us to do if we could just get this right One phrase that is is in this passage is that Jesus didn't use his power for his own advantage. And the Greek, literal Greek there is that he didn't grasp for everything. He didn't use his hands and try to force his way. He didn't like box other people out. He could have lived differently. He could have tried to use every ounce of his power for his own glory. But he doesn't grasp like that. That's not what our God is like. And one way I think that we could all just experience this a little bit better and understand it is Scripture teaches us that there's enough. You don't have to live your life grasping for everything because there's enough. And your question might be enough of what? Everything. There's enough joy. There's enough money. There's enough food if we were to live the right way. There's enough. And so you don't have to live grasping. And that mindset, if we could just get that, I think could completely change the world. There's an author named Lene Twist who who wrote this, and I think this is the description of so many of us. For me and many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. Some people are having kids in here. You're going to say amen even more to that soon. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, complaining, explaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up again feeling lacking. The internal condition of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our anger. And I think this is a great description of our world today. And in some ways, I would argue that it's unavoidable. You're very busy. You have a lot going on. You're tired. Perhaps you, you work 60, 70 hour weeks and you, you have kids. Or even um, if you don't, you just, you're busy. You have a whole lot going on in your life. Things are busy, and I understand that. You know, you wake up and you feel like you could have gone for another couple hours of sleep. I understand that. But the reality is that if we wake up, and this is just going in our heads, I'm lacking, I'm scarce, there's not enough, I didn't get enough of this, like, it doesn't really help you even if you're tired, right? Thinking about it and having your mind there doesn't really help the problem. What if you could wake up tired, And that you didn't get enough sleep. And there's just a lot on your plate. And instead of just running that through your head constantly, you just said, you know what? There's not scarcity in the world. There's going to be enough. And God, I I trust that you are with me today. And I'm going to put my mind there. And even though I am lacking at times, and even though I'm not going to get everything done today that maybe I need to, God, I'm just going to trust that you are with me today. And by the time our heads hit the pillow, we would say, God, you know, there was a couple things that were left on my to-do list that I didn't get to. But that's okay because you're going to work through me tomorrow. And God, I give you the world. Wouldn't that change things? Instead of just thinking I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm this, I'm then have this long list of complaints. I think mean, that's so true. Even before we, we get out of our beds, there's just like a list of, of of things that we're already thinking. There's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. There is enough. And the way Jesus lived shows us that by emptying your power, by seeking to glorify others, you truly can honor God. And so that means you don't have to live grabbing for everything like it's some sort of like weird supermarket sweep or something like that. That yes, that means you work hard, that you use your gifts and your talents, and you bless the world because the world needs your gifts. But as you begin your day and as you end your day, you would understand that God doesn't live grasping for everything. That God doesn't grab like that. Instead, this song in Philippians reminds us God gives. And God gives not only to like everybody else, God gives to us. What if despite the things that we lack, despite the things that we want to see better, the things that we want to fight for, what if we just had the perspective that God gives good things to us? I think this church is how we could have pure joy. And we didn't think about how we could say, like, the thing that's going to cut people down in the right way. Or we didn't just constantly think about how, you know, I'm going to get this advancement in my company. Everything's going to get better. Or just we didn't have that kind of pressure all the time that we just said, I instead am going to live like Jesus with open hands to worship God with my life. I love how Psalm 23 uh, says this especially in this translation. Generally, we'll hear Psalm 23 as the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, which is really saying the same thing, but this is more modern language. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. My challenge for you this week is to wake up in the morning and to go to bed by simply saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. This psalm continues and talks about even while things are good, when I'm in green pastures, when my my soul is at rest, when things are peaceful, I recognize that God is with me. But even though I walk through the darkest valley, even when things are difficult, when I'm literally having conflict with people, when things are hard for me, you still are with me. Your goodness and your love, they follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in your house forever. It's a perspective that says I'm not going to live just trying to grab, grab, grab everything, but instead I'm going to to bless those who are around me. I'm going to live with open hands and I'm going to trust that there is enough. Tell somebody next to you, there is enough. The Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. Nothing. And it's not because of ourselves, it's not because of our own gifts or our own talents. It's because this is what God is like. That God comes into a world which is even more honor-based than ours. In a world where Caesar says, I am king and I am son of God, and God says, that's not what God is like. May we live from this perspective. We're going to sing a song of praise now that honors our God, that helps us to to remember exactly who our God is and that God is worthy of praise because of the way that Jesus lived. I hope for all of us this week that we get the chance to live from the perspective that Paul describes here. And if you wake up tomorrow or someday this week tired and feeling like you haven't been able to do enough, know that others are feeling the same, but that even in that, God is with you. Let's stand and worship together.